0: 40 to 50% of all land is used for agriculture, most of that being animal agriculture, livestock, grazing, at very little return in terms of calories or protein. If you look at the percentage of how much land is used for growing crops directly for humans, it's only 5 or 10%. Potatoes, veggies, oats, corn, everything. We've cut about 46% of the trees on land since the dawn of civilization. The vast amount of trees and forests we've had, we've cut down. And if you look at tropical regions right now, the vast majority of land being cleared is for either grazing or for feed crops. So for growing soy, for growing different grains, and these grains and, and soy being grown are not for human consumption. In the Amazon, the vast majority of soy is
1: going to pigs and chickens in, in Europe
0: and China. In China
1: That's China. environmental researcher Nicholas Carter, and this is episode 104 of The Proof Podcast. Hey friends, good to be back here with you again. If you have been following this show or Plant Proof on Instagram, you know that I'm very interested in, in planetary health and, and understanding how our food system needs to change, needs to adapt in order to feed 11 billion people, which is the number of people expected by 2050. At the end of the day, our health is inextricably tied to the planets. So I feel as, as a nutritionist, as someone educating in this space, if I'm not also thinking about planetary health, I wouldn't truly be serving humans. And I must say, at at times, I am heavily frustrated by some of the misinformation I see floating around on on social media. I don't want to give too much away from this conversation, but I do want to, to provide some background information, as this is essentially part one of a two-week planetary health sort of feature or mini-feature, whatever you want to call it, with the second episode being with Ryland and Finian from from an organisation called Kiss the Ground, who I sat down with in LA a few months back. Here's the download. I have an issue with a certain part of regenerative agriculture called holistic grazing, being touted as this sort of panacea and a solution for climate change and i have that issue because i really do not think the science is there to support it and and despite that it seems various companies and and influencers online are using it almost as a form of greenwashing in an attempt to support their narrative that consuming meat is healthy and and good for the planet red meat in particular so Rather than, than just presenting one side of the narrative here, I am essentially covering both this week with Nicholas and, and next week with, with Kiss the Ground, and, and you can decide where you sit. I, I came across Nicholas uh, originally through, through mutual friends and came across his work, and, and to be perfectly honest, I, I really think he is one of the most well-studied and non-biased people in this space. In each of these episodes, I will have a bunch of resources for you to to read, including some large blogs that I'm personally putting together, and a summary at the end of each episode in the outro with my thoughts. So with that said, let's jump into this one and hear from environmental researcher, Nicholas Carter, a conversation we recorded a few weeks ago remotely due to COVID-19. Here we go. I'll see you. On the other side, one of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the InsideTracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked InsideTracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire InsideTracker store. To get started, go to InsideTracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's InsideTracker.com if you're a longtime listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company With a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains 8 key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA omega 3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily which contains 750 mg of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating two to three pieces of fatty fish per week, in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Nick Carter, welcome to the Plant Proof Podcast.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: It's a it's a pleasure to to finally be able to do this. I know that we were we were planning to catch up in Boston uh, a few months back now, but that didn't work out. So I appreciate you taking the time uh, to sit down and and walk us through the science on planetary health and and climate change and and how our food choices uh, impact the planet. Happy to.
0: I'm a big fan, and uh, yeah, in in Boston, it would have been great to connect. And uh, this was like March 14th. We were supposed to be meeting, and then that's when everything just kind of escalated with COVID 19. So everything was canceled. So, uh, yeah, no, it's great to great to connect. Uh, we get a lot to to go through, and I'm excited. And uh, and uh, you definitely know your stuff in this too. So uh, I'm looking forward to the chat.
1: I guess the main the main reason that I have have got you on the show and i'm not i'm not 100% sure how i i stumbled across you i think someone shared one of your blogs and i read this and i was i was amazed by someone who who was really able to to go through the nuance in the science and you know this area of of climate change and planetary health i feel like for decades you know, from from speaking to to people in the in the industry, it's almost an area of science that had been somewhat swept under the carpet for various reasons. Whether you know whether that was commercial, and it wasn't something that that governments were really acknowledging. But it it does seem like now there's so much data that it is becoming a, a conversation. At the same time, there seems to be some debate and some misrepresentations and some some myths out there, and you know, I came across your work, and and I thought that you were doing a, a fantastic job in addressing all of these issues. So uh, many of those, which I hope we can go through today,
0: for sure. And I appreciate it. I mean, when you think of the environment, a lot of people think about carbon, and that's what a lot of government focuses on: is is uh, is carbon tax and and policies to address that. Not knowing that agriculture as an entire sector has a massive potential for mitigating environmental issues, mitigating climate change, and it's really not a focus. And uh, just like you mentioned, it uh, hasn't been a focus. It's been um, all about fossil fuels. So it's it, it's a big topic. and uh, And that's been my focus. And just to give you a bit of the story of how I got there, initially, my background was more related to Technology and in business, even I was in different business ventures before going into the environmental research. And my initial entry into, like my master's in environmental science, was one hoping to address the environmental issues through technology, through solar panels, through renewables, through uh, wind turbines—all really exciting stuff. And I got very frustrated very quickly at just how small of a piece this is of the pie. It's it's much bigger. And we can get into that. But uh but this is so I quickly shifted. I was like, okay, let's look at some other environmental issues. What else can I really focus on here? And agriculture just seemed like such a huge area to focus on. And, and that's what I did. That's what I've been doing for the last,
1: I'd say about 10 years now. I mean still to this day, I think I think most people would sort of understand that uh, their car and jumping on a plane. And the electricity that they use and 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 how that's powered through fossil fuels has a negative impact on the planet but the animal agriculture piece in particular it is quite nuanced it's quite confusing there's so many different opinions out there there's you know there's one headline one week and then a different headline the the next week does that frustrate you it
0: it kind of motivates me to be honest because it, it shows there's such a need for communication of the science behind this. And it's not a very crowded space. And, you know, it is a little frustrating still when you see something like cows are the solution to climate change. And this is exactly what we need to do to reverse climate change. So it's, it's greenwashing, greenwashing that, that definitely frustrates me, not even just in agriculture, but overall, that's something that's prevalent in society today. But overall, I'd say it's pretty motivating and exciting because the information is getting out there. Not just from people like me writing about it, but from global entities like uh, IPCC and and the Lancet. So, I mean, the information is getting out there.
1: And we'll we'll no doubt come to cows in a little bit, and we can talk about holistic grazing and and sort of the claims around that being a, a solution for climate change. But I think to sort of kick things off here, to to preface this, why is it so important that we are considering? how human activity is impacting the, the health of the planet. What's, what's on the line here for, for humans and, and for other animals and, and for the planet itself? I think the best way to frame that
0: would be look at what COVID-19 has done to our societies. Look at what it's done to our collective economic system, personal mental health, just everything. Well, ecological collapse and environmental issues will be far, far worse. In climate change, we're talking in loss of um, just environmental systems. This whole thing will will shape the next generation and even our generation. It'll shape all kinds of hopefully good, possibly bad. So this is why it's so important because it's, it's ever connected too. I mean, even just, uh, I mean, you you focus so much on um, personal nutrition and, and you do such good communication of that and, as you know, it's it's now showing that it's more connected than we've ever thought. It's about personal nutrition. It's about the well-being of humans. It's about our living creatures around us, entire ecosystems. And this is this is planetary health. That's what that is. And we're just seeing that we can't live in silos. We can't live disconnected from nature and expecting unlimited economic growth within a finite system. So there's whole sciences behind this now. The the planetary health discussion is about looking at the connection between all these
1: disciplines. So to sort of, I guess, paint the picture from a a tangible point of view, you talk about the next generation or or two generations away. What are some of the tangible things that they would experience if we kept going on the current trajectory and, and kept sort of, you know, walking on the planet as we are now?
0: To look at what we've done so far, so from industrialization in the 1800s to now, we've already warmed about 1.2 degrees. And the the Paris Agreement signed a couple of years ago was to limit us to 1.5 and uh, make every attempt possible to to achieve that. Um, So we've already since then warmed another 0.2 degrees. And even at 1.5 to 2 degrees, we're looking at a major shift. And the crazy thing about that is it doesn't sound like much, right? The, the average listener that doesn't study about this doesn't doesn't look into this. Okay, one and a half two degrees, not a big deal. Change changes day to day, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, oh, it's a little yeah. bit warmer. Cool. Yeah. Um, but uh, but no, it's it's the global system changing by that degree that that makes a huge difference. And uh, I mean, what what will it do? It'll mean just change in life as we know it. There'll be. More heat waves, more extreme weather overall. Not even just heat, but also weather systems. More hurricanes. No more coral reefs. Like at one point five to two degrees, you will not see much coral reefs left at all in the ocean because there'll be so much ocean acidification. And I want
1: to, I want to, we'll define that in a little bit. Sure. Continue on with at a high level with what we, what we would see if we didn't change. Just we're going
0: to see a lot of issues of around scarcity of resources. So even at 1.5 or two degrees, you're going to have food shortages in certain areas. You're going to have water shortages. You're going to have, you know, fights over this too. When there's limited resources, this is what creates political conflict as well. So if anyone really wants to, to dig into possibilities around what climate change can do, it's a little bit terrifying, but there's, there's a phenomenal book on that by, um, uh, David Wallace Wells, uh, The Unhabitable Planet and uh, this is just a phenomenal book about climate change and the projections around it and we're measuring this well we're measuring this um, at what could happen at one point five degrees, which is the big reason why the Paris agreement went in place but we're also measuring what can happen at uh, two degrees three degrees uh, four degrees and uh, it's not a it's not a very enlightening picture but at the same time I'm, I'm not an alarmist I do see there's there's major major potential to to stop this and to to put things in place to change our societies around so we can we can live on this planet.
1: Yeah, but you know, it's it is important not to have our sort of head in the sand and and just be coasting through life with the sort of ignorance is bliss mentality. You know, some of those things that you just mentioned then, particularly like food scarcity, that's a scary thing to sort of ponder. We just see our food system in developed countries, you know, we see it as a given, as a, as our right that this food exists here. To think that that could one day be taken away, and as you say, could be something that people are fighting for—a resource people are fighting for—is definitely a scary thought.
0: People are already worried right now with uh, with meat plants that are closing across the country, and, and we can kind of talk about that a little bit. But food security is is a major, major topic. We need to look where is most of our food going, where is it being wasted. Uh, what will happen on a warmer, warmer planet when it's harder to grow food? And you know, waste is not just something out there; it's also in our personal, individual lifestyle situations. But food security will be a, a major, major topic to do with climate
1: change. So let's define some of our terms, and then we'll we'll dig a little deeper into into this stuff. You've mentioned climate change; that's probably a, a term that people are familiar with. But I think. Um, it's very much become synonymous with planetary health, albeit planetary health is actually a bit broader. So, do you want to just break that down and and define, I guess, the the different areas of planetary health?
0: Yeah. So, if we first just look at climate change, uh, the very simplest way to to look at what climate change is is picture our planet. It's surrounded by an atmosphere which acts as a, a greenhouse, just like a greenhouse in in your backyard. It allows living things inside of it to to flourish. So this greenhouse effect—it's a process where gases in our Earth's atmosphere trap the sun's heat, and uh, this allows our planet to be livable. So if you look at Mars, it's a little bit further away from the sun, so it's a little bit colder on its own too. But they have a very, very thin atmosphere, where Earth is a thicker atmosphere. So how human activities contribute to climate change is is by emitting these greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, which almost works like a blanket; it, it warms it up and it creates it, uh, it creates it warmer. And, uh, and that, that's not just from fossil fuels, but that's from methane as, as well from cattle. That's from the inability to sequester this from, from the air. So that's a key part that's missed, and we can get into that. But it's, it's not just what we emit, but it's also our ability to take it out from the atmosphere. So that's climate change. It's been measured over the last 100 years uh, by NASA in, in various ways. You know, There's been detailed reporting on this, for the last 100 years or more, and it's a major topic. But outside of climate change, there's all kinds of areas of planetary health that are important.
1: On that, the, the climate change and the, the greenhouse gases, the Earth sort of naturally emits some greenhouse gases, right? And there's a, there's, there is a natural cycle. There is. Uh, and what we are talking about here and what you spoke about before when you mentioned pre-industrial levels, We're talking about a rise in these greenhouse gases beyond the natural cycle?
0: Beyond the natural cycle, absolutely. So we're looking at anthropogenic causes, human causes, and we were able to track what is specifically from human causes, what is specifically from natural systems, natural emissions from a wetland, natural emissions from uh, termites, even termites emit all kinds of uh, methane. So it's, it's vastly on top of that. And it's the human related causes that, uh, has put the last hundred years vastly warmer than any other period, uh, over the last several hundred.
1: And when you look at the graph of, I was looking at a graph on, um, I think it was one of Hannah Ritchie's articles and it shows, I think the last, I think it shows like 800,000 years. And I believe they get that data through like ice cores or something like that. Is that right? Yeah. But you can see that natural cycle and then you can really see it in the last 200 to 300 years, a very sharp rise. Big time. Yeah. And, and
0: there's all kinds of reasons for that. I mean, we, we can talk about that. It's not just one specific thing we're doing. So it, it is vastly heightened by human causes. But at the same time, it's easy to see how denial can be such a, a major force of climate change. It's jobs, it's economic systems People don't have the language to understand what climate change will do to our economic system, so it's not valued within most systems. Like the the value of nature, the value of carbon sequestration of trees, the value of just resources and having them is not factored into our economic system. So it, it's easy to see how denial and pushing this aside can be so prevalent today, despite what the science says. So I think it, there's a there's a major importance of communicating this in a way that can resonate to all different types of people. And that's definitely something I'm working on. But it's a difficult task. There's all kinds of different backgrounds, all kinds of different worldviews. And climate change is overall, it's one of the biggest issues that our generation has to deal with. And we need to find a way to communicate this in a way that shows the urgency, doesn't create like a, a rebound effect where you get overwhelmed and doesn't create this effect where you don't want to do anything about it. But it needs to, people need to be aware of it, right? And, and do what you can. I think one of the biggest issues around knowing what you can do is all the headlines, right? You see all kinds of headlines that show different things you can do to lower your ecological footprint. A lot of confusion around that. I saw one, this was in December and it said, if you want to lower your footprint, stop watching Netflix or stop using data. And sure, there's a footprint to it. There's a footprint to everything. But in the grand scheme of your of most people's ecological footprint, we're talking way less than 1%. So it so, becomes a distraction. It's a distraction. It is. There, there is, I'd say, a list of like five or six big decisions that someone can do to lower their ecological footprint. And that varies depending on where you are. These are the things we need to know about. It's, it's
1: not about these little distractions. Let's make sure we summarize that to, to close out this conversation. So that's, that's a bit of a primer, I guess, on climate change and the warming of the, of the planet. And we'll come back to, to break down some of the causes. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Insight Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics and biometric data from Harvard, MIT and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, Insight Tracker's ultimate plan And create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to InsideTracker.com forward slash Simon. That's InsideTracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash living proof to download your zero cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash living proof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. But then outside of climate change, you mentioned things like ocean acidification, freshwater use. What are some of the other things that we need to be thinking about in terms of how human activity is affecting the planet? I think the best piece of writing on
0: that recently in research is um, it's sort of Stockholm Resilience Centre. And that's from a researcher named uh, Johan Rockstrom. And uh, he did something called um, uh, Planetary Boundaries. And it looked at climate change. It looked at just our overall biosphere integrity. It looked at land use. It looked at freshwater use. It looked at ocean acidification, ozone depletion. And uh, overall, so the overall picture of like our overall systems of what it takes to live on a planet that, that is livable and, and it is how we like it. And, and looked at what is beyond the zone of repairability, like what is very, very damaged, what is getting close to being damaged and what really needs to be on the radar. So just as an example of how this is an important topic, so ozone depletion, that, that's a big part of it. With the Kyoto Protocol, which is similar to like the Paris Agreement, this happened, uh, you know, a couple decades ago. A big topic there was addressing ozone depletion, and global leaders across the world saw this as an issue. saw it was measured. People saw that okay, this is our ozone is depleting. All kinds of products that were made that were ozone depleting were removed from shelves. People aren't using them anymore, and we've effectively reversed that. We've changed that. So this just shows that. Decisions that political leaders make, uh, education on what causes issues around our, our planetary boundaries, communicating that can, can make a big difference. And, and that's one success for sure that, that that's had. And, and, you know, Paris Agreement is another one tackling that. So back to your question on planetary boundaries, essentially, the big focus for, for me has been land use of those. Climate change is huge, but land use is, is, a, is a major one. So why is that so important? Because land is how we sequester, how we how we bring these greenhouse gases out of our atmosphere. So we we can stop all fossil fuel use. We can stop emitting these greenhouse gases, gases. and you know it's not easy. It's a very difficult task to do that. So the two big things we can do is is stopping that or enhancing our ability to sequester this out of the air. The only widespread way of doing that to any significant measure. Is, is forest. It's trees. So there, there's grasslands that can do it too. There, there's vegetations that can do it too. Wetlands can do it. So it is our overall land that can help sequester that the most. So this might be jumping ahead a bit, but if you look at what's the biggest user of land, it's agriculture. 50% of all land, all ice-free land is used for agriculture. And of that, 80%, I'd say it's about 75 to 85%, that's the range is used for for livestock.
1: Which provides a a very small amount of calories, right?
0: Absolutely, yeah, a small amount of calories, a huge amount of land, uh, 33% of all land uh, that's ice-free is used for grazing alone. And that's that's knowing that the vast amount of animals that people consume are in factory farms. But if you think of, okay, 33% of all land is used for grazing, well, there's often said a solution to to that is is putting more animals on pasture and, and increasing that. Well, we, we can't use any more than than what's already being used, which is which is just a vast amount. So overall, land use is is so important because that's our ability to remove this from the atmosphere and getting that right and, and ensuring that the best forms of sequestering greenhouse gases is is, is forests that we know that we need to protect that we need to value that we need to ensure that. Okay, this is just as important as stopping greenhouse gases from emitting. It's ensuring that our ability to remove it from the atmosphere is is protected and, and growing.
1: The Kyoto sort of agreement that you mentioned then to do with the ozone. What was it specifically that human activity was doing that was causing that depletion?
0: There, there was all kinds. So it's it's aerosols. Yeah. So it's just anything that would deplete the ozone. So there was a number of products at the time that, that people were using. This was at least a couple decades ago. And yeah, so they removed them from shelves. They put bans on them. Uh, they educated people on the damage this can do, uh, educated industry on the damage this can do. And in most cases, there was alternatives. The discussion of environmental issues needs to focus on, okay, what do we have for alternatives? And what is the easiest way to, to shift people to alternatives. If someone wants to fly somewhere, for example, then you don't have an alternative of a low-emitting flight. Like you, you can, you can offset some of your emissions. You can, you can choose to fly less. You know, there is ways to address that, but there's not a a low-emitting plane. There's various amounts, but it's still very high-emitting.
1: Yeah, two things I like that you just said. Then was um, the education and the alternative piece. I think. You know, if we go back to sort of the industrial revolution, you know, a lot of, a lot of the, the human activity, how it's affected the planet, it, it's sort of, we've unknowingly affected the planet, right? And then this is a great example of the Kyoto with the ozone layer. This is why I came back to it, of rather than just being a big blame game saying, look, we were unknowingly doing something. We have the data and the science now. Let's make some changes. I think that's key to, to moving forward. Absolutely. Okay, so we've kind of, uh, I guess, broadly described planetary boundaries and, and, and climate change being one of uh, a number of different things to consider with regards to the planet's health. Maybe maybe we just dive a little bit deeper into those greenhouse gases that are in the atmosphere, the difference between, say, carbon dioxide, methane, nitrous oxide, and, and, and what are the main things uh, – within our lifestyles that are causing each of these to increase? So there's about six
0: different greenhouse gases. The the biggest three to focus on is exactly like you said. It's carbon dioxide, methane, and nitrous oxide. These are the most prevalent. These are the ones that cause the most damage. And each one acts a little bit differently in the atmosphere. So at the very simple level, everything's measured in carbon dioxide equivalent. So Methane is compared to carbon dioxide. Nitrous oxide is compared to carbon dioxide. So each one is given what's called a global warming potential, a GWP. Where where it really gets complicated and political is different organizations and different studies value all those differently. And when you can value them differently, when you can show how each one impacts the atmosphere differently, you can use that to... Manipulate the data, and you can you can show that okay, methane is should be valued at 100 years, right? Not not 20 years. And at 100 years, it's two and a half times less damaging to the atmosphere than at 20 years. So each one has a different value on on how much it can damage the atmosphere, and each one lasts in the atmosphere for different amounts of time. So if you look at just one first topic, so carbon. Carbon dioxide, it's over 100 years. It's in the atmosphere. About half of it does get sequestered back down into trees at any given time. With methane, it's a shorter-lived gas. So it's only in the atmosphere for about 12 years. But for that 12 years, it's it's vastly more potent and, and more strong. So it contributes more warming to the planet during that 12 years than carbon dioxide. And how much more is, like I mentioned, at the various levels. So if you measure it over 100 years, which is what the IPCC has done before, it's 28 times stronger than CO2. If you measure it over 20 years, it's 84 times as strong as CO2. And I've even seen IPCC and some other organizations too value that 10 years in recent reports because at 10 years, it's 130 times more potent than CO2. And the reason why they're doing 10 years is because it does li- live in the atmosphere for about Twelve years, so that's that's a better evaluation. But we don't have a hundred years to tackle these issues. We need to see what is doing the most damage over the next decade before we'll see significant more issues with warming, issues with permafrost melting, issues with you know all the issues we talked about earlier with regards to climate change. Just to kind of back up a little bit, so the Paris Agreement, it's it's trying to address all this by twenty thirty, right? So Limit warming by one to one point five degrees by twenty thirty. That's ten years.
1: With that on that one point five degrees, I know we've said it, but why was pre industrial levels set as a as a baseline? That's when
0: we did all the measurements, right? That's when the measurements started on a global level. And that's when we're able to track, okay, this is a problem. To to see who was first doing a lot of the tracking was fossil fuel groups. It was it was Exxon. And there, there's a there's a hashtag going around the internet that's called Exxon New, because 50 years ago, Exxon measured the damage that they were doing to climate change, measured the effects they were having on the atmosphere, and doubled down on marketing efforts to make sure that it's not a big deal and make sure that, that people are not worried about this. So this is taking a playbook from, I guess you could say, from nutritional uh, marketing too, right? So saying that smoking is not, uh, not bad for you. This is the same playbook that's being used by Exxon, a similar playbook that's, that's being used from, from big livestock companies too. So we can talk about that. But yeah, and then the, other, the third other major uh, greenhouse gas would be nitrous oxide. That's a long living one too. So that's about 150 years that's in the atmosphere and it's 265 times as strong at warming the planet as CO2.
1: So, where is the nitric oxide actually coming from? Is that from yeah? Like, what are the sources of it?
0: It's from a number of sources, mainly from synthetic fertilizer uh, and animal manure, and there's some that comes from fossil fuels as well. But nitrous oxide is mainly an agriculture emission. Okay, so I think the the UN FAO, so the United Nations uh, Food and Agriculture Organization, they they measured. Uh, nitrous oxide emissions, and 65% of them came from livestock act- activities. And that would include waste, and that would include feed. So growing the feed crops, whether they're using animal manure or synthetic fertilizers, 65% of it came from, from livestock.
1: Yeah. And methane?
0: Methane is a problem of fossil fuels and a problem of ruminant livestock. So 35 to 40% of human-caused methane comes from farmed animals, some from ruminant farmed animals, so cows, cattle, uh, sheep, goats, buffalo, most of those being, being cows. And uh, the other slightly lower amount, about 30%, comes from uh, the energy sector, so coal, natural gas, oil. So methane is, um, you know, both. There, there are issues for both. And the way methane is emitted from a cow would be, Similar to how it's emitted from uh, fracking, so from from when methane's emitted there, it, there's some articles and some studies that will show okay, it's not the same. And this is this is uh, uh, biogenic methane. This is methane that comes from the rumen, like the stomach of a, of, a, of a cow. But the way it impacts the atmosphere is the same.
1: Interesting. So yeah. And carbon. So what what, what industry? Obviously, um, fossil fuels, but. If we, if we look at the actual carbon emissions, what are the, the main contributors to that? Is deforestation also part of that?
0: Yeah, so it's, it's a major fossil fuels issue, carbon dioxide, and it's, it's coal, oil, natural gas. That's, that's the huge amount. And the discussion of carbon dioxide, just like you mentioned, needs to include forest though, because some, some of the CO2 emitted is from burning biomass, people burning trees and burning biomass for heat. That's, that's an issue. But uh, but the vast amount is from coal, oil, and gas. And then the discussion on carbon dioxide needs to include, well, how do you remove that from the atmosphere too? And that's forests, that's trees, that's
1: rewilding areas, and that's restoring ecosystems. What do you say then to this sort of argument that that pops up that climate change is an energy issue? You know, by far and large, it's an energy issue. And if that's not tackled, it doesn't matter what we do.
0: So this is what... I think my work centers on. It's, it's vastly more than just an energy issue. It's an ability to sequester carbon from the air, which is our land use. So it's, what are we using land for? It's agriculture. And in agriculture, what uses the most? Livestock activities. So it's an energy issue in the sense of carbon dioxide mostly comes from fossil fuels. But methane's usually undervalued. Nitrous oxide is usually even forgot about. And those are just as damaging on the overall scheme, if not more. So it, it's a complicated discussion politically and in major, major countries that are addressing uh, environmental issues. It's all about a carbon tax. It's all about uh, addressing carbon dioxide first. And that, that has been the overall focus. Environmental groups have been focusing almost fully on carbon dioxide. They've been focusing on agriculture. And there's a number of reasons for that. And not all of it is is disingenuous. A lot of it is also just that you know there's evolving science with regards to how methane impacts our atmosphere, and there's evolving science on on how nitrous oxide impacts it, and just understanding and forgetting that you can reduce greenhouse gases, but you also need to make sure that you protect our land and protect it because this is how you, you suck it out of the air. There's not going to be a a technology anytime soon that does this for you we have that technology now and that's trees so how do we protect that that that, that needs to be a big discussion anytime it's mentioned about um, carbon dioxide
1: so a big part of that is changing agriculture so let's dive into agriculture and perhaps perhaps just explain the evolution i guess of how, how we've landed in this place what agriculture looks like today and what are the, I guess, the, the differences between the planetary impact of animal agriculture versus the growing of plants? So
0: agriculture has been the biggest user of our land. Um, 40 to 50% of all land is, is used for agriculture. Most of that being animal agriculture, livestock, grazing at, at very little return in terms of calories or protein if you look at agriculture what is feeding the world at very little land it would be growing crops for direct human consumption so if you look at the percentage of how much land is used for growing crops directly for humans it's only 5 or 10% and think of all think of everything that is uh, potatoes veggies uh, oats uh, corn everything for direct human consumption it's only 5 or 10% of all land so you can see right away
1: I think that's, it's quite interesting, isn't it? Because, okay, you say, where are the majority of the crops going, being fed to the animals? The
0: vast majority. So if you look at overall grains being grown, it's 50% of all grains being fed to animals. Um, soy, soy is a huge crop globally. Uh, 80% of all that is going directly to uh, livestock, mostly pigs and chickens. Yeah, so it's, it's being cycled through. So, I mean, that that's a perfect time to talk about what happens when we cycle it through in animals? Because they're not just taking that and efficiently converting that into uh, flesh, into, into, into meat for, for people. It, there's, there's something called feed conversion ratio when you grow feed crops. And uh, this is something studied in depth. And it's, it's, it's often a, a missed topic, especially when discussing factory firms. Take chicken. Chicken is the, the, the largest amount of farmed animals across the world, just a huge, huge amount. If you feed a chicken 100 calories of grain, you're only going to get 12 calories of chicken in terms of meat back. So that's a huge, huge inefficiency. So you're growing all this grain, you're feeding it to chickens, and they're only returning a, a percentage of that back. So it's usually about 10% on average. Mm-hmm. And if you you're doing that for for beef or pork it's it's much much less efficient because they need to use this to to operate as a as a mammal right uh, and
1: and and grow a skeletal system and and yeah. grow organs and all of that stuff.
0: Yeah so you feed 100 calories of grain to a feedlot uh, cattle and they're only going to return 3 calories of beef mm-hmm. back.
1: So my 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 question here just to play devil's advocate because I I know some of the counter arguments will be but they're not eating human edible crops. They're eating the, the crops that we can't eat. What would your response be to that? It's, it's such a cop-out. It really is because
0: just because some feed crops are not edible to humans doesn't mean that exact same land can't grow crops edible to humans, right? So there's certain ways of growing crops, certain ways you can do it that you don't need to take the extra level of effort because it's just going to, to livestock. But that same land is growing crops. You just need to grow something different or you just grow it slightly better. And it's not even like every single piece of land used to grow these feed crops needs to be used to to transition to feed to humans. You only need a small percentage of that because as we just mentioned, there's about a 10% efficiency rate once you feed it to an animal, right? So you're already having so much waste there. But uh, it is a common, common thing said.
1: We're we're talking about sort of um, grain-fed, you know, some sort of crop-fed animals, right? That uh, are sort of more intensive agriculture, right? Mm-hmm. So again, something that people may be thinking about is okay. What about the the animal that is free range or is, is grazing on grass in the in the pasture that doesn't have the same sort of input? of plants, uh, crops that have been farmed, um, and it's just living off and growing off natural existing grasslands. How does that compare?
0: There's two basically different ways of feeding feeding animals, feeding farmed animals. It's growing feed crops for mostly confined animals or putting them out on pasture and, and they're grazing and they're eating grass. That doesn't work for chickens pigs, and a number of other farmed animals. It works specifically for uh, ruminant animals. So for cattle, for cows, for uh, sheep and lamb and buffalo, even in some areas. So right away, you're limiting some. So for those ones there that are grazing, the vast majority that are grazing, they're grazing for a longer period of time in their life. They're using up more land and they're still finished, usually for the last hundred days of their life with feed. So there's still feed crop waste, but say you know I'll even play devil's advocate with myself. So you look at certain areas that are grazing their animals exclusively with grass. Even with that, because they're eating more of a fibrous diet, because they're eating more grass, it's going to emit more methane. So if you take a cow that's in confinement, or you take a cow that's been on pasture, it's it's going to be on average four times more methane emitted mm-hmm. when they're on pasture.
1: And that's a combination of what you're saying that the change in the diet, but also that you mentioned lifespan and that's because an animal that's uh, not confined and is out in a pasture is taking longer to reach the weight before it would be slaughtered. Exactly. Exactly. So it's a combination
0: of the two. You know, there's certainly some benefits to grazing. I mean, it's it's it certainly sounds like a better life. Uh, they live a little bit longer. It it is more palatable for people. It's there's a whole marketing story behind it. This is a huge effort in terms of communicating the sustainability of livestock, specifically cows. But, but we can get into that. But this is this is a major topic. Is is grazing, and
1: um, it, it sounds like there's a bit more to it than that. Than sort of you know. Grass-fed beef is definitely more sustainable, from what you're saying. Uh, feedlot, as as bad as it is from an animal welfare point of view, it's using less land and is responsible for for arguably less greenhouse gas emissions.
0: Yeah. So if you look at the one of the biggest studies that looks at agriculture was the United Nations uh, Food and Agriculture Organization, and this was a big part of my my thesis work. A lot of their recommendations involve urging the world to transition to feedlots to factory farming. They'll call it something differently, but that's essentially what it is. Um, and the reason for this is, in in some ways, it is better. In some ways, it's it's better for the environment. But of course, it comes with a trade off. Is it's um, this is where zoonoses are, are bred in a big way. This is
1: and a- antibiotic resistance. Yeah.
0: So, in, in your poll. A lot of different places and nobody likes factory farms you show them any footage this is just not something that they they like and a lot of people will think okay well i, I get all my my food from animals that are grazed right but that's just not the case for the majority of the world i know in australia for example where, where you are there's there's a lot more uh, animals that are, are on pasture but you know there's a trade-off there, there's a trade-off and, and the FAO is specifically focusing on on intensification, which would be uh, factory firms.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, in that trade-off in Australia, I think something that uh, a lot of Australians are not aware of, and I certainly wasn't aware of this, is that the number one driver of deforestation in Australia is um, creating more land for these animals to graze. It's an assumption that we just have this land that already exists that they're grazing on, but a lot of it has been cleared. And back to your point, that was originally a natural carbon sink.
0: Absolutely. And I I looked at this um, recently because I'm very interested at at, at that point. I'm interested at, okay, this area of land never had trees. And so this is the only way to use the land. This is a, a common theme in agriculture. So the only way to use this land effectively is to put cattle out there and allow them to eat the grass and then you know we can eat them. Th- this is a common, common story that's, that's told. So I looked, up, I looked up the stats on this. I looked up uh, overall tree loss and humans overall, we've cut about 46% of the trees on land since uh, the dawn of civilization. So just the vast amount of trees and forests we've had, we've cut down. And if you look at tropical regions right now, the vast majority of land being cleared is for either grazing or for feed crops. So for growing soy, for growing different grains. And and these grains and and soy being grown are not for human consumption. Um, In the Amazon, it looked at, there was a study from the um, FCRN, which is the uh, Food and Climate uh, Group out of the UK. And they looked at where soy is going in Amazon. And the vast majority of soy is going to uh, pigs and chickens in, in Europe and China. So yeah, this is why trees are being cut down. It's, uh, it's a major issue.
1: So that's sort of uh, speaking, I guess, to the animal side of things and, and also the, the, the plants and crops that are grown for feeding the animals. What would a more efficient food system um, look like? And, and how do you compare, I guess, the, the efficiencies of growing human edible plants versus animal products?
0: A more efficient system is focused... lot more on plants for human consumption so it's a combination of different methods of growing plants through what would be called polycultures so there's two different terms in terms of growing plants there's monocultures and polycultures and if we just switch all grazed land to growing monocultures this is just like rows and rows and rows of corn for example very damaging to the soil it's not a very sustainable thing you can't do this long term So you need to do it in terms of like rotating crops, which is polyculture. So that's one way for sure. A lot of the land being used for grazing and used for feedlots and used for growing feed crops should just be rewilded, should just be protected land, should be land that where possible can grow forests. There needs to be a value put to this in order to do that. And it's not going to be an easy transition because there's, there's lots of jobs involved with that. There's... There's, there's major economic and political concerns with, with regards to doing that. And that's a big reason why it hasn't happened. There's, there's been a, a steady level of the same or increase in grazing land across the world. So uh, a system that we need to shift to is an overall plant-based system. It's, it's a plant-based system for production. And uh, we also need to, at the same time, create revenue streams for consumers and, and companies to to consume these uh, plant-based products, because it can't just be a shift from the production side. It can't be just be a shift from the farmer, because they need support too to to have places that they can sell into.
1: I think an interesting thing to expand on there is that something else that I hear quite a lot is that you know people shifting to plant-based diets, they're responsible for all these monocrops and, <laughs> and responsible right. for all all of the soy and all of the corn. What do you What do you think about that? I mean, it's just not the case. You, you look at 80% of all soy, it's being fed
0: to uh, to livestock. And, and if it wasn't for the very low feed conversion rate, there might be some truth to that, right? But when you're looking at only 10% of this feed that we feed to animals actually converting into meat, then that's just a 90% waste off the top that the world is seeing. So... Uh, yeah. If we were to all switch plant-based, there's all kinds of news articles saying how a vegan world is just not possible. A plant-based world is just not possible. Um, most of them are just not understanding feed conversion rates. They're not understanding land use. They're not understanding the issues of biodiversity loss and habitat loss with regards to farming and not understanding the, the massive valuation of methane and how damaging this is to our atmosphere.
1: I'm not sure if, you, if you've looked into it, but the in Australia, for example, where there are, as you said before, a lot of the, the cattle or most of the cattle is, is grazing animals. If that was reduced and, and those lands were, were sort of left alone to return to sort of the their natural system, um, is there enough land to grow enough calories from, from plants to, to feed the Australian population?
0: I don't know that specific situation with Australia, but what I can answer to that is if there's a specific country that doesn't have enough crops or food or plants for human consumption, we have a, a global system of trade here. And people might think, okay, well, I don't want food being shipped all across the world. This is a very damaging thing. But as you know, so there's a there's a number of studies out on this that shows what is the footprint of food and the travel and consuming food from somewhere else is less than 10% of the footprint of the food we eat. So I, I don't know the situation specifically there in Australia, but I can say that there's vastly enough land to support not only this population, but 10 billion plus people that we're predicted to have on, uh, on a plant-based diet.
1: Yeah, I did a post on that recently. I think it's really interesting because earlier we talked about distractions and I think the local... The local versus imported sort of conversation. It is. It is clearly. It is important for uh, for many various reasons. But when you're looking at the the true environmental footprint of a food, it's a huge distraction from what is most important. And you just mentioned then, like it it, it makes up less than ten percent of a food's environmental footprint, and I think for beef, it, it it's like one percent. Yep. So whether you're buying that that beef locally or imported the majority of its footprint is through its production and the farming. Exactly. And I think the
0: important conversation to have there is, there is, there is reasons, lots of reasons to support local. It involves the economy, local jobs. But when you lump in buy local with, with food and how that's an environmental decision, it's just not. Because for the environment, the best thing you can do to reduce your footprint is to eat less or eat no animal products. This is not just you know, one or two studies of a few different farms. The the data, even based on that, that post you made, it's from 40,000 farms in 119 countries across the world. And it represents overall 90% of the food that people consume. So this looked at everything. And what it concluded is even the highest impact vegetable, take tofu, for example, the soy, uh, it still emits less than the lowest impact animal protein. So so take your regenerative grazed beef from down the street. It's still going to be more impactful to the overall environment than soy shipped halfway across the world. That's just how it breaks down.
1: And I think something else that was interesting for me is that only 0.16% of all food that is is imported or moved around the world is air freighted the majority of it is, is going by, by sea, by ocean.
0: I mean, that was surprising to me too when I saw that because I definitely wouldn't have thought that. And that's a big reason for it. So it would be that. There's, there's a lot more by, by transport, but it's also just the actual production, the raising of cattle, the land use, the methane emitted. All that just adds up to so much more than the last step of moving it to the final destination.
1: You mentioned regenerative agriculture and I can't let you go without delving into this because it, it certainly has become uh, a buzzword and within the regenerative agriculture is this sort of uh, subsection um, new sexy way of of raising livestock holistic grazing, which has got a lot of attention uh, you know through social media and on YouTube and I think it would be, important for us to sort of define what that is and talk to, I guess, uh, what some people are suggesting it could be useful for, and then where does the actual science lie?
0: So when I first dived into regenerative agriculture, regenerative grazing, the initial things I was reading was, okay, this could be a way to, to raise animals that, that makes sense. Because if you think about it, it's very unlikely. Everyone's just going to switch to Eating plant-based is very unlikely, so there needs to be ways to improve this system. I'm all for that. I'm not all about this, um, you know, all-or-nothing approach. There, there's a number of things you can do to Im- improve it. I just think that we need to avoid greenwashing and all this, and that's what a lot of regenerative grazing is—is is greenwashing. What it is, just by definition, is grazing uh, livestock that regenerates the soil and within this whole movement is the ability for it to sequester carbon because the soil is improved in this certain area. This is mainly coined from, from a fellow named Alan Savory and he did a TED talk a number of years ago that just got so much views and he's created a whole kind of sub movement of what's called holistic grazing. You can just look up his name. Anyone can look up his name. It's not backed by any credible science. Even his TED talk didn't mention any science. This is just, you know, experimental uh, stories. Uh,
1: but episode. I mean, you know, and it is, this is the thing with anecdotes. Um, you know, he's, it's a compelling video. The talk is compelling when you it see is. the trend, when you see photos of before and after of land. I too, like you, like what you were saying, when I first watched it, I was like, I need to look into this more and maybe this is going to change the way that i see things
0: and i think what it comes down to is this yes it can improve the soil that's been demonstrated and to know how it improves the soil you got to know the entire process so there's trampling of of animals on land that's not very intensified so this is not tens and 20 and 30 different cattle in one area this is spread out on a a vast amount of land and they're using cover crops. Cover crops is a, a major part of regenerative grazing, which helps uh, get the soil better and it helps protect it from uh, erosion and protect it from being eventually desertified. And uh, so so that's been a huge part, which is unrelated to the animal fully. Uh, cover crops is something that's used all across the world for for different ways of, of improving the soil. This is what's discussed as, okay, we need to take this land and we need to use that to reverse climate change. This is what Alan Savory is saying. But all it's done in terms of measurements for, for carbon sequestration is it's stored 2% of overall greenhouse gases. And this is with um, 35 to 41% of all land used for grazing. So if, if you use that much land and it only gives back 2% of sequestration, forests do way more. Forest, vegetation, just letting an area rewild, it sequesters way more carbon. So if it's a last ditch effort of grazing animals and and using animals within a food system, then you know use it for what it is, use it to improve the soil.
1: But this can't be a global movement. This can't be a way of sourcing food in the future. You say they're um, 2% sequestration, right? Are you talking about um, net sequestration or are you talking about just the, the amount of carbon that goes into the soil and not considering the emissions from the animals.
0: I'm talking, so they measure the amount of carbon stored. They they look at different ecosystems across the world, how much uh, carbon is stored in forest, how much carbon is stored in land, how much carbon is stored in intensively grazed area or extensively grazed area. And regenerative grazing would sequester slightly more, but it's still so, so small compared to what can be done from a forest. And even if it can't be a forest, even if it, it can just be a rewilded area, that's still going to sequester more carbon in the ground and above the ground with the vegetation that's, that's growing. And eventually, it could even grow a forest. There's, there's one example I read about last week. This is um, in India. And it's a desertified area. It's an area that's been told will never be able to grow anything. And what they did is they used plastic bottles to get water down into the soil to help get it moist and, and get it full of bacteria and, and just bring some life to it. And they did this all across certain areas and they're eventually able to grow trees. So if it's absolutely a need to grow trees in certain areas, which, which it is as much as possible to regenerate the land, then there's a number of ways that, that that can be done. And there's some pretty cool examples of that happening even in very desertified areas.
1: So to recap on that, you're saying... Despite it being claimed as a solution for climate change, it's it's it, it may be a step in the right direction in terms of soil health, but it's not a, a solution to uh, mitigating the, the the emissions and meeting the the targets set out by the Paris Agreement.
0: So I would say this: if a farmer is grazing all kinds of cattle in an area anyway, and they don't want to ever stop doing that, they should look at ways to do that more regeneratively. They should look at using cover crops. They should use that having less animals on the land because the more animals they're going to use an area, the more chance of it being the, the soil being damaged. Because what firms should be doing is replicating as best possible what a natural ecosystem would be. And if you look at even several acres of a certain ecosystem, there's only likely going to be one or two mammals there. There's not going to be 10, 20. That that is the key thing here. So regenerative grazing has a small role to play; it's very limited, and uh, overall, the land use, the methane emitted, is still an issue, and that just can't be a way that we we transition to feed the world.
1: Yeah, the methane bit is the other interesting piece because in the um, in that grazing and Re- confused report, you and I have spoken about the one I think it was out of Oxford University. Yeah, they were part of it. There's a bit in there where they they mention that even with carbon sequestration when you factor in the emissions from the animals on a a typical regenerative or holistic grazing sort of farm, there is still 40 to 60% net emissions. Exactly. And that's even like a very conservative
0: figure too, because they're not factoring in what that area could be used for if it's a forest and sequestering land. So a lot of these studies that are looking at are not comparing it to other forms of better use land. Almost all the studies that show even small amounts of carbon sequestration from regenerative grazing, they're comparing it to old forms of grazing. They're not comparing it to a rewilded area. They're not comparing it to a forest that could even be very close by. So that's how you skew the figures.
1: Yeah. The context there is key, isn't it? So while we're on that, why don't we, I, I think one of the more common examples that is floating around is white oak pastures. And there's a, a, a report out that shows that for them to produce beef is better for the environment than even, say, I think it had the Beyond Burger or the Impossible Burger or something in there, but was better than all other forms of, of animal agriculture and better than this uh, plant-based burger. What do you think about the, the White Oak Pastures study? Is it something that you've looked at?
0: I've looked at it in depth. I, um, it's, it's a very popular one to cite. It's not peer reviewed. Anything to do with it is not peer reviewed. Not that the peer review is the absolute uh, uh, goal of this, but um, any of the figures they're stating is just marketing material. Essentially, you can go on their website and they talk about the amount of carbon that's sequestered. You can talk about um, the improvements in soil. Not much of it has even been measured. Even for what they're actually saying, it's it's an economic argument. They're they're making a pitch to buy from them because they're doing these extra steps that consumers should feel good about. In some sense, consumers should feel slightly better, right? Because uh, they're they're buying it from them instead of a, a factory firm. But you're only talking slightly better when there's, there's vast, vast improvements that could be made by choosing to eat whole food plant-based or even a Beyond Meat burger or an Impossible burger. I mean, as as polarizing as that's been, it's, it's still vastly superior to even regenerative grazed.
1: And the the other, I guess, Piece for us to to consider here is, let's say the all uh, livestock uh, move to regenerative agriculture and holistic grazing. the The total land requirements for that would be would be mammoth, right? So, so the 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 net result, the I mean, when I am just sort of trying to compute this in my mind, the net result would be far less meat globally. You wouldn't be able to meet the demands, and everyone would have to reduce their meat consumption anyway.
0: 100 percent so any discussion of a future food system focused on regenerative agriculture needs to come with a massive reduction in meat consumed and just most of them aren't most of them is is not talking about that all at all so any discussion I'll have with people about this and I've had some some good debates on this with with different farmers that are doing it themselves it, it still needs to come with a reduction of meat consumed to do that because there just isn't enough land look at look at the numbers I, I talked about earlier right so Half of all land is agriculture. So you just can't use more than that. You need to use less. We don't have any more room to use for that. And that's what regenerative grazing would do to use vastly more.
1: If we move towards this system that is favoring a higher consumption of plant based foods, reduced consumption of these animal based foods, which are, are more inefficient to create and are, and are having or placing greater stress on our environment. Something that I'm thinking about here is fertilization. You know, often we hear about needing and requiring animals to fertilize the soil and to put certain nutrients back in that are, re- that are required to then create more life. How do you see all of that playing out if there are less animals? There's a number
0: of scenarios there. So there's something called stock free farming. This is a, a form of farming that's been happening for Hundreds of years. Uh, this goes way back to uh, Mesoamerica. Indigenous communities were were growing with stock-free styles of farming, and it's a polyculture style of farming. So they use different crops that they rotate uh, that fix nitrogen into the soil that help improve the soil on its own. And it's using cover crops. It's um, ensuring that it's a, a very biodiverse, rich area too. So it's not. It's it's very much farming as. A natural ecosystem should be so it almost Im- Im- uh, imitates it. you can also look at agroforestry agroforestry is another phenomenal way of doing this um, you can grow trees like fruit trees and and uh, and crop trees in so many different areas of the world so there's way way too much animal manure used and this would be the topic of like organic right organic usually means that manure is used instead of synthetic fertilizers both are damaging this is this is an issue. We can't have fully synthetic fertilizer used because that's based on fossil fuels. We can't have nothing but animal manure used across the world because both are damaging in different ways. So stock-free farming, veganic farming, polyculture, so swapping different crops uh, within it instead of doing a monocrop style, this is the way we're going to farm for the future. And any discussion of, okay, well, we're going to switch to growing all crops and all plants needs to remember that, Right now, the vast majority of plants are being fed to to animals. So we don't need all that land. We only need small amounts. So if we use just the best areas to grow it, then we can do that.
1: Is there an education piece there? Would you say uh, the education and the sort of skills are there across the globe to be able to implement a farming system that is, is not reliant on on manure?
0: There is. It's not as big as it should be. I mean, it's a very fringe movement. Uh, but if you look at... I, I wrote an article for A Well-Fed World, in, um, which is a nonprofit group in the, in the United States. And uh, we, we showed the number of veganic firms across North America and in other areas of the world too. And there's so many. And it's not even like a lot of these firms are ethically based. They're not farming this way for ethical reasons necessarily. They're farming that way because that's what's been sustainable for them. That's what's helped... Their soil—that's what's helped them get higher yields—and this is all doing it without adding any extra manure or any extra synthetic fertilizer. So this is, um, you know, this is in the same realm of permaculture. This also—if you look at what I mentioned earlier about—it's an uncomfortable conversation about jobs and farmers and how we just need to. Farm less animals and more plants, this might create less jobs. Well, this style of farming, veganic farming, polyculture, permaculture, this might use some more jobs because it's a bit more of an expertise style of farming. But there's a precedence here. It's been done for a long period of time. There's experts all across the world in this. And it's a growing movement that, uh, that just needs to continue growing because it's a very, very ecological way of farming that produces a good amount of yield back and, and can support uh, most areas of the world. Uh, this style of farming.
1: So that style of farming, it, if if they're not using manure, are they using, and they're, and they're not using synthetic fertilizers or they are using some? Some of them use some, but yeah. um, I think the important thing to measure here is there's
0: a number of things to look at that uh, the soil needs and none of which comes directly from manure. So the animals will consume this from plants, just like in the nutrition talk, right? You think, well, all the vitamins and all the uh, the essential uh, things you need, well, they come from plants. The same thing works with growing it, right? They all come from plants. So even what's being used in manure, say it's for nitrogen, say it's for different minerals that create uh, a diverse uh, amount of soil, this all comes from plants. So it's firm, it's, it's planting something different. So It's the plant,
1: original source.
0: It's the original source, planting some nitrogen-fixing lentils. We, we do this in Canada, and we're one of the biggest... Um, exporters of lentils and it's it's been a a very very good shift and uh, that's what's needed for sure
1: so it's kind of like green manure is that what it's called
0: this is exactly what it is yeah it's green manure that would be another way of calling it and it's um yeah there's some there's some great cases all across the world if anyone wants to look that up
1: yeah it's a it's a very interesting area so the 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 manure itself coming back to the manure from the animal that correct me if i'm wrong is part responsible for some of this pollution of waterways?
0: Big time. You look at all the dead zones in um, near Florida. This is all from runoff from manure. Some runoff as well from synthetic fertilizer. And this creates dead zones in, in ocean and waterways. And uh, essentially nothing can live there. So dead zones is, is a major issue from agriculture. And so is ocean acidification, which is essentially just like a warming climate, which makes the water more, more warm and uh, can't have life.
1: Okay. So tell me, um, I think you've you, you sort of described nicely where we need to get to. And of course, people can, on their own accord, make some of these shifts. But do you ever think about what are the, what are the big decisions, uh, policies that, that governments, you'd like to see governments around the world putting in place to make this system that you're talking about something that's easy for the population to follow? and something that the, the masses will follow? Uh, and is there any countries around the world that you think are leading the way? There's a number of things I've thought about there. So one thing I've
0: noticed is telling people what to eat is not a nice conversation to have. It's, it's an uncomfortable conversation to have for a lot of people. It, it touches on your core as a human being. You're growing up as a kid. This is a very uncomfortable conversation. And look at some of the strategies that PETA is used and almost like a shameful strategy. It's, it's, I'd say it's about the worst is what you can do. It, it's not very productive. It's not education-based. It's not welcoming. On the consumer side, like we talked a lot about the production side. On the consumer side, I think the absolute best thing that governments can do, companies can do is making it easy to choose a plant-based option. This is something called default veg. So making the default option a vegan option or a vegetarian option if it's, if it's a certain place too. Doing that is going to substantially increase the amount of those options chosen. And there's been studies done on this. So there was a study out of Harvard. They, they made the, the default option vegan and it increased the amount of choices with nothing else done. There was 40 to 70% is what it was. I think it was 41 to 71% more plant-based options chosen when that was, when that was one of the options. So I think this should start with government uh, facilities. This should start with uh, schools, healthcare facilities. The last place that you should have a hard time finding a plant-based option should be any healthcare facility. And in school, you know there should be all kinds of those options for for that. What this is is this is changing the infrastructure. Look at uh, just an example of transportation. So different. Countries across the world have focused their transportation systems in different ways, making it easier to bike in certain areas, making it easier to drive in certain areas. If you change the infrastructure, you'll make it easier for people to make better choices without any sort of shaming. For bikes, Copenhagen, one of the easiest places in the world to to bike. And this is not by accident. You know, they're, they're a biking culture. This goes back into their history, but also they've just made biking highways and just it's so easy to do that. So this same thing needs to happen with plant-based options.
1: There's a a book called Blue Zones mm. by Dan Butner. You've probably you've come across that. Yes. Um and Dan is now working to do sort of like blue zone certified uh metropolitan areas around the world and they're doing exactly what you're you're talking about. So cool. they are Going in and, and working with cafes and restaurants and schools and trying to make the plant-based option, or at least put plant-based options on the menus as a starting point, and have a little Blue Zone logo next to them, calling out to to everyone what the benefits are, and increasing the the size of, of jogging paths and and bike uh, lanes and things like that. So, yeah, and they they seem to be getting you know some fantastic results in terms of improvements of you know, the the health across the the society.
0: That's awesome. And that's what it needs to be. It just needs to be easy to make that choice because it's not right now. You get in many places across the world, it's not easy to make that healthy choice, not easy to make that environmentally friendly choice. So outside of that default veg strategy, which I think is so, so important on the consumer side, it's changing funding. So no more subsidies to these big livestock companies that are among the richest companies in the world. And more funding towards plant-based options. We need to factor in the, in environmental economics, it's called externalities. All these issues of climate change, all these issues of land use, ocean acidification, this needs to economically be factored into who's creating it. And who's creating it in a lot of ways is these big livestock companies. So they need to bear the cost of that. And once they do, their products will be more expensive. They won't be choose as much. I think that's. It sounds like an easy way to do it. That's that's not easy to to make these changes, but that is what needs to happen.
1: Did I read something that the 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 Trump administration has pumped a fair bit of money into the to the livestock industry in in the states following the 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 virus and the the sort of subsequent effect it's had on the industry?
0: They, they've essentially bailed them out. In Canada, they did the same thing, but it wasn't to the same extent and. The amazing thing about this, about this, is some people think, okay, well, farmers absolutely need the support, and I agree. They do need support during times like this. Their whole supply chains are are upended. Uh, there's so much less food going to restaurants, right? It's all going to grocery stores, which just changes what people choose for food. So, as a policy, as an announcement, it's it's very welcomed. They're like okay yeah great there there's funds going to to these firms it's not going to local small firms it's not going to sustainable firms in any way in the states and in Canada both the vast majority is not even touching any vegetable uh, or plant-based protein firms at all which um, have been impacted just the same like the vast majority is going to these companies like Cargill JBS Tyson and like in the states Cargill as a company it's the biggest earning private entity in all of the United States and they're getting bailed out from the government and they're causing a lot of these issues with um, with the environment, with health, Mm. uh, with being bigger breeding grounds for zoonoses with all kinds of human issues too. Like the social issues around these jobs, most of them are the ones catching COVID-19. This is just horrible all around. And on the surface, it, it looks like okay, farmers are getting support, but that's not what's happening.
1: Hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's it's somewhat ironic that these big companies are are being bailed out during a a, a a very a very large global problem, but at the same time, are themselves contributing to to many of the the global issues that we're facing. at the At the beginning, you you talked about a handful of of things that. Will legitimately lower someone's environmental footprint. We spoke about the fact that there are sort of uh, distractions and and uh, and whatnot. While we're waiting for for governments to to put things in place, some of these things that you've just spoken about. What are your main recommendations that people can can implement from today to lower their environmental footprint? It's different for each person. But across the board, some of the biggest decisions you can
0: make is shifting your diet, shifting your diet to be mostly plant-based, if not fully. The, the study on that is, is massive. This is the same study that looked at 40,000 firms and 90% of what everyone eats. Um, this is what they showed, that that's the biggest thing you can do to reduce your ecological footprint. Th- they showed that in, across the world, is 20 to 40% is how much you'll reduce your footprint be 20% in the States. And in the UK, it was around 40%. So that's a huge amount right there. But outside of that, there's all kinds of things people can do that are high on that list for reducing your footprint. Flying less, consuming less, driving less. If, if you have the means, switching to an electric car is still a good option. You're switching to solar panels and, and uh, wind turbines. They're still good options, although highly unachievable for, for most people in the world.
1: I've got a, a question on electric cars that I was thinking about. So does it matter um, about the how your country is generating that electricity that you're using to charge that car?
0: Yes, yes, for sure it matters. Uh, it's still a better choice though. So even if you switch to an electric car that the energy source is coming from coal, there's still less energy being used than Filling it up with gas every single time and doing oil changes and, and things like that, so it's still better. But yeah, that is that is the the hypocritical point that is being pointed at electric cars is okay. Well, you're just sourcing it from coal now, and uh, and it's a fair point. It, it is much better to source it from. Say you have a couple solar panels on on your garage that that charge up your your car. Like that's the way to go. The, what really frustrated me initially when I went into environmental science is just how unattainable, that is, for the majority of people in the world. Being told, okay, put up some solar panels, buy an electric car, invest in renewables. This is just not something that's achievable for most people. Switching to eating more plants, especially now when even in the last few years, it's gotten so much easier to do that with all these alternatives that might not necessarily be like a healthy option, but they're vastly, vastly better in terms of environmental footprint. I'm talking like beyond meat, impossible foods, things like that. Yeah, so th- those are some things you can do. Uh, you can also look at other areas of food too. Reduce your food waste. Thirty um, percent of global food is wasted, and it's even worse so when you're wasting animal products if you're eating that. So waste less food. Compost at home. Uh, I have a compost in my place. We don't have solar panels on our roof. It's just not uh, achievable in in Canada in terms of how much it costs. Even though there is some areas that are doing it and, and off grid and using solar panels that's great but it was a it was a huge upfront cost for me to do that so instead i just insulated my home a lot better i downsized to a smaller home so so downsizing consuming less uh, composting eating more plants driving less flying less these are ways that you can reduce your ecological footprint
1: talk to me about i guess when i when i think broadly about our the human activity affecting the planet and you look at the increase in temperature um, increase in emissions, and then you look at our population growth, and it's you know this is a a another one of those tough topics to 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 talk about and have a conversation about. But you know how 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 many people can this this planet actually sustain?
0: Yeah, I mean it, it certainly can't sustain high consuming uh, humans like we are now. So we need to to lower consumption overall. We need to minimalize in terms of our footprint. We can feed more than 10 billion people, if we shift towards plant-based eating, that, that's been shown with the amount of land that can grow food, with the efficiency of growing food for direct human consumption if it's plants. So we can do it. But a big divide in environmental action is whether technology can solve it, waiting for technology to solve it, or taking lifestyle actions and consuming less. You know it's not a, it's not a sexy thing to consume less and minimalize, and there's not any sort of economic incentive mm. tied into it, aside from just you'll be buying less stuff. Uh, you might be, you might be driving less and flying less, but this is what we need to be doing as a society. We, we cannot just infinitely use resources we have and buy unlimited things and and expect that we can do that forever because mm. we just can't. So I'm of the philosophy that technology will play a part solar panels, wind farms, all, all, all these things can play a part. That part's probably small and we can't wait for any sort of major innovative technology to then just suck all the carbon and methane out of the air because it's just not going to happen in the timeframe that we need to address these issues.
1: The interesting thing is we're, we, we may be getting somewhat of a glimpse right now in this experience that we're going through now in terms of flying less, driving less, living a little bit more minimalistic. Right. Have you looked at how the sort of uh, social isolation around the world has has impacted the the planet? I have, and
0: at first I was like, "This is this is great to some extent. There's maybe a silver lining here." But it's hard to even call it that when there's you know there is people suffering from it, and there's there's a lot of you know issues this is creating. So there's really no silver lining with what's Mm -hmm. going on right now. But we are seeing that there's less greenhouse gases emitted. There's less planes and cars and everything on the roads. And uh, so, yeah, in, in one sense, we are getting a feel for what, that, what that's like. And um, th- the problem is it very well could go back to normal, could go back to normal, whatever you could call that. It could go back to how it was before. And it could even emit more. So even if you look at investments right now in environmental technology, it's at an all-time low, all-time low. So there's even like in the States, they're investing more in coal now. So it's it's almost a way to just invest in some of these emitting forms of energy and damaging forms uh, to the to the environment to get through this tough period. So it might not be a good story in the end for the environment.
1: Yeah, but it's a, I guess it's an example of collective willpower, so yeah. to speak. Or if, if 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 everyone comes together and pulls in the one direction, the net effect, you know, this is a bit of a roadmap. To, to say, hey, look what we can do. Absolutely. Um,
0: yeah. So like flattening the curve is such a huge thing right now. That's what we're talking about in terms of uh, getting the cases of COVID-19 down. There needs to be the same sort of initiative with ecological destruction. We need to flatten the curve there, flatten the curve of greenhouse gases emitted and increase our ability to, to get this out of the atmosphere with trees. There just needs to be that same level of tension because this is just very, very mild compared to what ecological destruction and climate change will do for us in the next decade or two and, and even further.
1: And the win-win there is if you flatten that curve and at the same time people are eating more plants, they're riding their bike more instead of driving, you're also flattening that chronic disease curve yeah. at the same time. Yeah.
0: Uh, yeah. And getting fresher air and, and less pollution. Like this is a win-win and it's, it's not often framed that way. Sometimes addressing environmental concerns is is seen as okay i need to give up this or i need to lose this in my life and my life's not going to be as good because i'm not getting as much cool stuff but there's lack of inspiration on seeing how no there's a much better way out of this that looks at sustainable development and looks at um, uh, planetary health as a whole
1: okay and last last uh, one before i let you go we'll have to do a part two the, to, yeah. the, the renewable energy piece, I find that I find that interesting. Um, you mentioned that's sort of where you started uh, your your passion, I guess, for this area started before you moved across to looking at land use and um, agriculture and the, and the impact that lifestyle decisions make. Are you optimistic about renewable energy? Like what, what and and these alternative forms of energy? Like what can we expect in the next few decades?
0: Solar's is the cheapest it's ever been. So there's all kinds of good signs for renewable energy. But I'm not optimistic if I'm focusing fully on technology to solve these issues because they won't. We need to address our overconsumption. We need to address what we eat, how we farm, how we use land. I, I was of the mentality that technology could in many ways solve this, uh, but it just can't. It- it's not in any way the level it needs to be. There's a Brand new documentary that just came out called "Planet of the Humans" by Michael Moore, and um, this was just so polarizing in this whole environmental space. I don't know if you've seen it or, or, or heard of it, but
1: I've heard I've heard of it. I haven't watched it yet.
0: I, I watched it. Uh, there was all kinds of statements that were wrong about renewables in there, which did the movie a major disservice because it addressed some very good topics with regards to overconsumption, population, uh, ways to live within our means, but it didn't need to do that at the expense of getting 10-year outdated facts on renewables and uh, discussing that electric cars and solar is damaging the environment without comparing it to what we're using right now, which is coal and oil and gas. So it it, it did a, you know, documentaries, you take it for a grain of salt because you need to look into it, right? You, you can't just take it at face value, but it, it did a disservice for not getting the stats right and really addressing the topic, which I think they were trying to address, which is or overconsumption.
1: So tell me, wh- why do you think it is in that in that documentary um, that they they went that way? Was there was it influenced from industry or? I I don't think so in this case,
0: but it's going to be used as an example of industry. They're going to use this as a way of saying renewables are horrible. And I don't think there was necessarily malice in, in doing that. I just think that they probably started the documentary like 10 years ago. yeah. And they just didn't update some of their facts about it and didn't consult with climate scientists that are experts in this and showing the solar is cheaper than it's ever been. So yeah, it's, uh, it's frustrating because it's going to further divide this and probably set back any sort of action on it because renewables will have a piece to play but it's, it's it still as much less than most people think.
1: Well, Nick, thank you very much. You're, you're a wealth of knowledge. Um, I've certainly learned a lot and hopefully you can come back and we can do this again soon.
0: I so appreciate it. Uh, the, the work you're doing is amazing. And uh, I love that you're looking at planetary health. I've read some of the stuff that you've written. It's phenomenal stuff. And uh, I'm so excited to read your book when it comes out. and yeah. Thanks for having me on. I, I really appreciate it. And, um, and I hopefully provided some value to, to, to your listeners.
1: Absolutely. Let's do it again. Great.
0: Cheers, thanks mate. so much.
1: Well, friends, there we go. I hope you enjoyed that. What's super clear across the research is that any move to a more plant-based diet is a good one for not only your health, but also for our environment. These foods are simply more efficient to grow, require less land, and and result in far less greenhouse gas emissions. It's really staggering to to think that animal agriculture takes up 83% of all land dedicated to agriculture and produces 80% of food-related greenhouse gas emissions, yet only produces 18% of the world's calories. It's also interesting that Although holistic grazing is better for the soil, it is still responsible for more greenhouse gas emissions than the carbon that is stored in the soil, which means it's still a contributor to climate change, not a solution, not the solution that it's being made out to be. The other thing I wanted to add about holistic grazing that enthusiasts of this form of animal agriculture often fail to address is meat supply. Let's pretend for a second that holistic grazing was a climate solution and sequestered more greenhouse gases than it emitted, which it doesn't. But let's just pretend for a second that it did. If the entire world's livestock industry switched to this, so we got rid of of feedlots and, and more traditional grazing, and we just moved to holistic grazing, we would not have enough land globally to produce the same amount of meat. Even if they rip down more forests, which, which, as discussed in this episode with with Nicholas, would be a terrible idea for for planetary health. So, what would the net result of a of a move from conventional feedlots and conventional grazing to holistic grazing be? Well, it would be a dramatic drop in red meat consumption and a greater shift to to more plant based diets. There simply would not be enough supply to meet the demand. So, even then, if one was to be proposing this as the best system moving forward. They would need to be also advocating for dramatic reductions in per person meat consumption. And this is actually something that I bring up in, in next week's episode with the guys from Kiss the Ground. We don't actually come to, to a sort of set answer, keeping in mind that the, the episode next week was actually recorded before this one but I'll leave you with that to to think about. And as mentioned in the introduction, please see the show notes for a bunch of references to learn more about this area. I've also included a link to a new documentary called Meet the Future, M-E-A-T, which discusses cellular agriculture, this this, uh, world of what what is called clean meat, a topic that I have penciled into cover in, in a coming episode that I think is really interesting. And I think you'll find it very interesting too. This idea of clean meat, cellular agriculture, whereby technology is is being developed to grow meat from stem cells without the need to to breed and grow animals themselves may sound a little crazy. It sounds like it's out of a movie and and no doubt will and already has been met with a lot of resistance. However, I, I definitely do see it as the future, I see it as a more sustainable way to feed people meat who are not open to reducing or eliminating meat from their diet. It requires significantly less water, less land, arguably in, in many cases or most cases, less energy, no antibiotics, uh, making their way into the food system. There's no animal waste, pollution, etc. And it will be a little weird on, on shelf for a few years and and then I think it will become the new norm. And we will look back in decades to come and, and be thankful for a switch to a more efficient and ethical system. Would I personally eat clean meat or, or, or cellular agriculture derived meat? No, probably not because I feel fantastic eating a completely plant-based diet, the best I've ever felt in my life and, and really feel no desire to, to eat meat or any animal product. But I do think it, it will serve a purpose for, for creating a better world and shifting the masses to a more environmentally sustainable diet. Anyway, friends, as always, a little bit to digest there and some food for thought. Thank you, again for for hanging out with me today for sticking around until the end. I, I really do love these conversations. I love the fact that I can have these conversations. You can be here, we can learn together. So thank you so much for showing up. Thank you for being a part of this community. It's certainly not something that I take for granted. Please do let myself and Nicholas know what you thought of today's episode. The best place to find him is on Twitter at Nicholas D. Carter. You can also find me on there and Instagram at plant underscore proof if we're not already connected. We would both love to hear from you and, of course, field any questions that you may have. As mentioned, next week I have the guys from Kiss the Ground on, Ryland and Finian, which I really do look forward to sharing with you. Even though we may look at holistic grazing uh, a little differently, it's a great episode about regenerative agriculture as a whole. I hope you have a good week and I'll see you back here for episode 105. Don't stand me up.